Welcome once again to Rotherham Evangelical Church. Glad you could make it, even in during your summer holiday season. We're going to continue on in the book of Proverbs today. We have a summer series entitled Foolproof, as you see it. Uh, we want this congregation to be known as a congregation that has wise people in it, and not as the, the biblical category of a fool. I want to specifically mention uh, young people today. Uh, this doesn't always happen in our in our sermons, and, and really, this this talk should apply to the spectrum of all ages. But in particular, I think young people, because the people addressed here are are what they call sim- the simple or the young, and that's more than just an age category. But it is an age category at the same time. So I said I, I was thinking today. If you're a young person, and maybe perhaps you tend to maybe tune out a little bit, this is a good time to not tune out, I think. Whose house will you live in? We'll be in Proverbs 9, and we'll be in Proverbs 4 to start off. And that's on page 638 in your Red Pew Bible. So you'll need that. So get out that Red Pew Bible, page 638. Last week I introduced the book of Proverbs to you, and it's all about wisdom. And I defined wisdom in Proverbs as the ability to skillfully and successfully live, even when the rules don't apply. The ability to skillfully and successfully live, even when the rules don't apply. Wisdom, we said, had several companions. It involves discipline. It involves the ability to be perceptive, to perceive things as they really are. And it involves virtue. Wisdom, we said, can't simply be memorized. It has to be internalized. Wisdom works at the kind of instinctual level. But most importantly, we learn that the foundation of getting this wisdom is a relationship with God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 7. So this is kind of part two of the introduction to the book of Proverbs in terms of our sermon series. One thing I should have probably mentioned last week uh, is that the book of Proverbs... Sorry, oh, I'm missing a few. Looks like we have a problem here. Well, anyways. The book of Proverbs is broken up into two basic sections. Chapters 1 through 9, and then the second section is chapters 10 through 31. The first part is all about a father's series of lectures to his son about the topic of wisdom. The second part is is the part that you probably are familiar with. It's those pithy, kind of proverbial sayings. And they're mostly unconnected, uh, but they cover all ranges of, of, of topics. So I guess you could say the first section sets the mental framework for reading all the rest of the Proverbs in chapters 10 through 31. After this week, we'll look at specific topics in the book of Proverbs, like sexuality, guidance, parenting, relationships, family, friendship, anger, pride. Those will mostly come from the second half of the book of Proverbs, but again today, we're going to look at the broad call of the book of Proverbs. And it's summed up like this. What journey in life will you take? What will your path be? Whose house will you live in? Will you, will you go on the path of wisdom that leads to Lady Wisdom's house? Or will you go on the foolish path 
that leads into the house of Lady Folly? That's the main question. But let's first read chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. Listen, my son. See, it's addressed to the sons. Accept what I say. The years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the ways of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of righteousness is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Proverbs 1 through 9 is all about what path you're on. One path is safe. It's straight. It's properly lit in Proverbs 4. It leads to flourishing and success. That's wisdom. The other path is dark. It's a bit crooked. It's it's dangerous and it leads to ruin. That's foolishness. One path leads into the presence of God. The other path leads into separation from God. One path provides the right restrictions so that you can have freedom. The other path promises this artificial freedom, but it always gives way to slavery. One path leads to community success, and the other path leads to conflict with people. When Proverbs says path, it's referring to your way of life. This small, tiny Millions of decisions you make. The life and goals that you're striving for. That thing that you're putting your hope and trust in, that's your path. But the important thing to know about a path is that they always have a destination. That's why you go on a path. The Bible provides, and especially the book of Proverbs, provides incredible simplicity to the complexity of life. Listen, we all know this. Life is incredibly complex. Why people do the things they do is complex. Why there's poverty and suffering, that's a complex question. Why certain people thrive and other people's fail, that's complex. But into all the complexity of life, God brings this refreshing simplicity. There are two ways to live. There are two spiritual journeys you can take. Not three, not four, not 15, not a million, two. A wise one that brings life or a foolish one that brings death. That's it. All the complexity of life boils down to two choices. This is what, this is why getting wisdom, right, is so important. Because your only other choice ends in ruin. That's why verse 13 says, hold on to wisdom. Don't let it go. Protect it with all you've got. Treat it like it's your very life. But how? How how do we protect it? The answer is in verse 23. 
above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. This is Christianity 101. You want to hold on to wisdom? You want to guard, you have to guard your heart. That means guarding your affections. That means guarding your loves. Because everything you do, every decision that you make, flows from what you love. People cheat on their spouses because they love sexual gratification more than their spouse. Workaholics neglect their family because they love power or money more than they love their family. Students cheat on their tests because they love success more than learning. In each case, someone's love is in the wrong order. Sexual pleasure is meant to aid love for spouse. Your love and enjoyment of work should serve your greater love of providing and and protecting your family. Our basic problem is disordered, misordered loves. Sometimes we, we love the wrong things, right? But most of the time, our love for things is just way out of order. For example, love and enjoyment of sex is intended to serve our love for spouse, right? But instead, it usurps our love for spouse. We love things that don't deliver on their promises, and then those loves end up enslaving us and destroying us. What we need is to find wisdom, or sorry, what we need is to find what our hearts were designed to love, and then we need to cling to that. And that is wisdom. But here's the difficulty. I think there's a devil in this PowerPoint today. Just kidding. We encounter competing voices along this journey. We encounter competing invitations from the world. Come follow me. Take what I'm offering. It will bring you satisfaction and fullness. And that's exactly what the author of Proverbs presents us with in chapter 9. That's the main text we'll be looking at today. It presents us with two ladies, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, with two contrasting invitations. Chapter 9 is the climax of this first section of the book of Proverbs. The first eight chapters, guys, envision a young man. If you look at the beginning of every chapter, do it sometime. Every one begins with, my son, listen, my son, listen, my son, listen, my son. It's as if the first eight chapters envisions a young man walking the streets with his wise father. And the wise father is giving his son lectures about wisdom and foolishness as they walk the streets. They walk down one street, and the father says, chapter 2, chapter 1, watch out for these men. They'll promise you all kinds of enticing rewards, but they'll destroy you. And see this avenue. There's always violence down this avenue. Don't go there. And this market area is filled with businesses, and they're, and they're selling you, they're telling you to trust in yourself and not the Lord. Oh, but... Here in this shop, you can find wisdom. Get wisdom. Whatever it costs, buy it. It's so valuable. This shop will bring you success. Stay here. Oh, but down this street, it's filled with women that will seduce you. They'll destroy you and eat your soul. 
And now the father and son have come to the end of the journey. And he says, son, carry on yourself. And the son, still immature, still young, is walking down the street. And there are two houses on either side. And outside of each house, there is a lady calling to him to enter her house. And the final question of chapter 9 is, will you embrace wisdom? Or will you embrace lady folly? Chapters 9, verse 1. It's on page 642. We're going to read the first six verses. We first come to Lady Wisdom's invitation and Lady Wisdom's house. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come. Eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Both Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly make their house at the highest points of the city. We'll get to this later, but it's very important because there's only one building at the highest point of an ancient Near Eastern town. It's the temple, the place where the God lives. But we'll get to that later. First, I want you to see, I want you to see three things in this in these first six verses. First, I want you to see the character of Lady Wisdom. What is she like? Well, first in verse one, she's disciplined. She builds her house. She's hardworking. She doesn't ask someone else to do her work. Out of her great wisdom, she designs and constructs a house of wisdom, and she makes her own meal and sets her own table. But she's also smart. The house is built on seven pillars. The number seven here in this context uh, indicates the idea of completedness. The foundation is, is holds complete. It's sturdy. This thing isn't coming down in a heavy storm, okay? It's there to stay. She built her house the right way with her smarts. Third, she's prosperous. Again, a seven-pillared house, that seems a bit strange to you, but that's kind of a stock language for it. This is a palatial home in the ancient Near East. She prepares a lavish meal with the main course of meat. Again, a delicacy in the ancient Near East. She mixes the wine with honey and spices. It's, a, it's delicious. It's a luxurious meal. The whole idea here is that her character, the, the character of woman wisdom, is impeccable. And all who live with her flourish with her. In verses 4 and 5, we see the invitation of Lady Wisdom. Who, who does she invite? She invites the simple. Described as those who have no sense. They're naive. They're young. They're untested in life. Their future is still uncertain. They could go one way or the other. But at this moment, they're not headed towards the right path. They need, she needs to turn them off the trajectory they're on. So she says, enter the house of wisdom. Live under my authority, that means. Live by my teaching and advice. Find protection from the evil in my safe haven. Eat my food. Drink the wine I've mixed. To dine on wisdom's lavish banquet is to listen and accept her advice. Just like meat and wine provide physical nourishment to our bodies, right? So we can thrive and live. 
The wisdom of Proverbs provides spiritual nourishment, soul care. Okay, we have all kinds of other kinds of care, medical care. This is Proverbs is soul care. She says, "Leave your simple ways and walk the path of insight." Entering wisdom's house requires you to leave the place that you're on. It requires repentance. You have to leave your old path. You have to turn your back on your old selfish desires because they actually don't bring life at all. The Christian life, just to fast forward here, the Christian life is a life that has had a decisive turn. Okay? We don't live for money or selfish ambition or power or sex. We live now with all those good gifts from God in order to make him look glorious which means we live for truth and for beauty and for justice and for goodness. That's her invitation, but we find out the destiny of those who follow her in verse 6. Verse 6 tells us that life awaits those who enter her house. Now, life here is eternal, but it's also, notice, it's the insightful path to eternal life. Which means your destiny of eternal life can begin right away. You can have a life that flourishes no matter the circumstances, good or bad, poverty or rich. You can have a life that flourishes as you walk the road to eternal life. That's the message here. If you embrace wisdom, your destiny of eternal life starts in the present. So Proverbs is teaching, at least in these verses, that life in relationship with God, the wise life, the Christian life, is not some drag existence in order to get God on your side. No, the Christian life is a feast it's presented here. It's genuine flourishing and joy. Jesus offers the deep uh, offers us the deepest of relational intimacy. Jesus offers wisdom that is more valuable than a billion dollars. He offers us a meaning and purpose in life that can't be destroyed or taken away. Search the marketplace of ideas out there. Where is there a meaning and a purpose of life outside of the Christian worldview? that cannot be taken away from you because of bad circumstances. Friends, if you view the Christian life primarily as the keeping of archaic rules that spoil your pleasure, then you just have no idea who Jesus is and what he offers. This is the way I used to think about Christianity growing up. I thought, growing up, why does the world get all the fun? Why can't I do whatever I want? Non-Christians, the world, they can drink to their heart's content. They can say whatever they want. They can watch what they want. They can sleep with whomever they want. That's freedom! And Christianity got all these restrictions and rules that rob my joy and my freedom. 
I was the epitome of the fool here. That's the epitome of the fool. Christianity, friends, is an invitation to a lavish banquet that fulfills your deepest longings. Christianity is an invitation to a lavish banquet that fulfills your deepest longings. The things that you can put your identity in, that you can put your love in, money, power, sex, affirmation, the American dream, I don't know what you call that over here, the British dream, if there is one. All those things, you see people that have attained them and they're miserable because they don't fill the massive hole in your life that's designed to be filled by the presence of God. Guys, this is true even when we share the good news of Christianity. When we're, when we're presenting Christianity, we're not presenting this kind of sad existence that we have to kind of convince people to kind of take on all these sorrowful, these kind of sober living in order, in order to kind of get God's approval. No, Christianity doesn't always have to be on the defense. Remember, what we're offering is something with immense pleasure. We're not selling something like those guys down in the Rotherham Town Center that are selling something. You can tell they don't even want to sell. They don't even like it themselves. And you kind of try to avoid them because, you know, they have to be there selling you something. That's not what we're doing when we share the gospel. We're giving people a feast and a banquet, and they just don't know it. But we're going to meet Lady Folly, because she's also inviting simple people into her house. Verse 13 of chapter 9. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way, Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. She takes a seat also at the highest place of the city, the temple. The, the, the text literally says she sits on her throne there. And she also is described, her character is also described in this text. She's brash in verse 13 and boisterous. That's what unruly means. She's simple. She lacks knowledge. She's not even aware that she lacks knowledge. But this isn't intellectual knowledge here. Because after all, she's quite shrewd in, in seducing young, young simple men on the, on the way down the street. So, so in one sense, she probably has quite a bit of street smarts, doesn't she? She lacks moral knowledge. That means she can't discern right from wrong. She, she doesn't even understand how to help people flourish. And lastly, she, she's lazy. Verse 14 points out uh, that Lady Folly just sits in the front of their door of her house. 
Compare that with with Lady Wisdom in verse 1, that she builds her house for her guests, she makes it ready, she goes out and prepares a fine meal, and Lady Folly just sits there. She's the exact opposite of Lady Wisdom. And in verse 15, we see her invitation. She calls to the simple to leave the straight path and follow her. I want you to notice something. Her invitation to the simple-minded is exactly the same as the invitation of Lady Wisdom in verse 4. The only difference between the two invitations is found in the banquet that they offer. Okay? She's not saying something different. She's offering something different. Lady Wisdom slaughtered an animal for fine meat and offers her own bread and wine that she's mixed and worked for. But Lady Folly offers stolen water and hidden bread. Her banquet isn't the fruit of hard work and wisdom. Folly's banquet is stolen and filled with secrecy. Again, these are metaphors for for sexual pleasure that is taken away from one spouse to whom it rightly belongs and then hidden from that spouse. So Lady Folly invites the young man to turn in here in verse 17, and this is how she allures him. Verse 17, read with me. Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. The pathway of Lady Folly, guys, seems pleasurable. And in fact, it is enjoyable for a season. The bread and water from Lady Folly is is a meager meal compared to the meal offered by Lady Wisdom. It's meager in comparison. You have meat and wine on this other, and you have bread and water on the other side. But it still tastes sweet and delicious. This reveals that seduction is Seduction, I'm I'm talking broadly, of all sins, how how Satan, however he would tempt you, is obviously foolish, but it's still effective. You see, there's always some truth in the seductive appeals of Lady Folly. But the half-truth conceals the destructive lie. Stolen water and hidden bread may be pleasant for a season, but destruction waits all who enter. Anyone in their right mind should know that Lady Folly's meal is a cheap substitute for the lavish meal one can get from Lady Wisdom. But foolish people don't act in their right mind. What's their destiny? What's the destiny of those who follow her? Lady Folly's house is actually a death trap. Verse 18, the simple one does not know that the dead are there. In the dining room of her house may be a feast full of stolen delicacies and hidden comforts. But just behind the curtains of her walls are the bones of dead men. Men who have bought her lies and they've paid a dear price. The destiny of her followers is eternal destruction. Her guests are, in the deep, in, are deep in the underworld. The deep underworld is the place of eternal destruction. In the end, the path of folly brings utter ruin. It brings defeat. And it even brings eternal torment. The foolish person is forever separated from the joy of wisdom's banquet.
But how might Lady Folly capture your heart? Okay, we've been speaking in metaphors for most of this time. But what it's asking is, how is Lady Folly, the world, going to capture your heart? There's a spiritual battle going on for your heart right now. That's why Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart. What delicacies of the world will Satan hold out to you that look appetizing? And indeed, they are appetizing, but they're empty. And they're not only empty, they're dangerous. Satan even uses good things and tempts us to make them ultimate things. Then that good thing becomes soul-destroying and life-destroying and not life-giving like it was intended to be. Money. The profits of hard work are a good thing. The Bible has loads of good things to say about making money and using money wisely. But if you love money, if you love it, it's going to make shipwreck of your life. You'll make bad decisions. You'll take a job you hate. You'll work too long and neglect your family. You'll work too long and neglect your church. You might even cheat or lie to make money. You'll put relationships and people behind making money. You'll love money and money will become your God. Your God then will destroy you. Sex. Sex is an incredible gift. Sheer delight, pleasure in another person. But if your love for sex, particularly, I'm talking in marriage, of course, that's where it's supposed to be. But if your love for sex is greater than your love for spouse, or if your, sec, if your love for sex is greater than your love for God, then you're going to make terrible decisions. Sex won't work the way God designed it to. Sex won't cause you to love your spouse more. It won't cause you to grow in intimacy with your spouse. It will be a tool for self-gratification. You'll begin to wish you could have sex with your colleague at work or with your friend in the neighborhood because it's about self selfish gratification. You, you'll break apart your family. And worst of all, you won't even experience the purpose it was designed for in the, in the first place. When sex becomes your God, when sex is, gets the ultimate place in your throne, it destroys you and everyone around you. That's wisdom. If you don't have wisdom, it doesn't only destroy you, it destroys the people who interact with you. Affirmation. Affirmation is a good thing. We crave and need a parent's affirmation. We crave and need a spouse's information or a good friend's affirmation. But when we prize the approval of humans more than God, we'll make terrible decisions in order to get that. We'll give away false humility. We'll cut corners so people will like us. We'll cheat on tests so parents will be proud of us. We won't serve in quiet ways, and we won't be satisfied when we give our best effort, even when people don't see it, because we only want, we only care about people seeing what we do. But the only affirmation that finally matters is God's affirmation. And, and brothers and sisters, he sees right through false humility. 
He sees every corner cut, every small act of cheating. He knows all small acts of service that no one else sees. God can't be fooled into affirming you. But God tells you how, he, how he'll affirm you. It's by trusting in his son. What, might, what thing might Lady Folly use to trap you in her house of death? Is it a certain lifestyle? If I could only afford this house, live in this neighborhood, then life would be good. If I could get this job, life would be good. If I could just purchase this holiday home, then I'd be content. If I could just be married, then I'd be happy. If that boy would just notice me and, and want me, then I would be happy. Listen, the deadly appeals of this world don't turn up to you as a red little demon with a pitchfork. Okay? That doesn't happen. They look relatively innocent. They come offering good things. Sex, work, marriage, affirmation, power, all fine and good things. But when you value these things more than God, that good thing becomes an idol, and that idol destroys you. The world offers you something and says, this created thing will fill the massive hole in your life. And God says, that hole can't be filled by any created thing. Okay. Well, hopefully, you don't want Lady Folly's house, and you want Lady Wisdom's house. But who is she? Who is this Lady Wisdom? That's the all-important question. Okay, I want to enter her house. I don't know who she is. On the one hand, we know from Proverbs 8 that Lady Wisdom is Yahweh, that's the God of Israel, Yahweh's attribute of wisdom. Okay? Lady Wisdom in chapter 8 represents, personifies the characteristic of God's wisdom. But I think that Lady Wisdom stands for more than just God's attribute of wisdom. Let me explain. Remember that both Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, they live in a house on the highest point of the town. And in the ancient Near East, only one house is built on the, on the highest place of a city, and that's the temple. And who lives in the temple? Someone can just shout it out. God. The local gods of the town. Or, if you're in Israel, God himself. The temple is where the God is present. You need to see that Lady we Wisdom represents not just the wisdom of God, but the God of wisdom. Lady Wisdom is not only a personification of wisdom, she is a personification of Yahweh in his wisdom. On the other hand, Lady Folly, she would have been perceived by the people who read this as the wisdom of the pagan gods. All those pagan gods who sat in their temple and tried to lure Israel away from the true God of Israel. Of course, those pagan gods were just tools used by Satan, right? And Satan is still using those god, the gods of this age to lure us away from the true God. 
But if it's true that Lady Wisdom personifies God himself, if that's true, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God in the flesh, this text is a call to follow Christ rather than the world. Jesus shows up in the Middle East, and all the people of Jerusalem are asking, where did this man get this kind of wisdom? This isn't human wisdom. And then, and then, and then we hear Paul, the apostle, in Colossians 2, 2 say, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and power and knowledge. And then, even more pointedly, in 1 Corinthians 1, 24, he just says, Christ is the wisdom of God. He's the wisdom made flesh and bones so we could see it for our own eyes. Not this just abstract metaphorical concept of lady wisdom. It's Jesus. When we follow Christ, we are following, right, this is written to sons first and foremost. It's written to all of us, but first and foremost it's written to sons. When we follow Christ, we are following the only son who never once stepped on the doorstep of Lady Folly's house. But there's one verse that really sticks with me. It's in 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ is not only the wisdom of God. Christ has become God's wisdom for us. 1 Corinthians 1.30. He is God's wisdom for us. Sometimes we only think of Christ in relation to to the law and the prophets. Yes, Jesus is our Savior from the law, because we stand condemned under the law. He and also is the final and true prophet of God, because he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. But I want you to see this. Jesus is also our counselor. He's our mentor. I love what one pastor said, describing the book of Proverbs. Jesus is is counseling us through the book of Proverbs, and he says, Jesus doesn't just love you. He understands you. He doesn't just love you. He understands you. He's the best counselor you're ever going to have in life. Sometimes I think we're tempted to think that I can go to Jesus for spiritual inspiration. But when I've really got a problem that needs to be fixed, he just won't cut it, and I need to go to the secular professionals for the real answers? Listen, Jesus knows you, and he understands you better than anyone. In fact, Jesus understands you better than you understand you. He's the greatest counselor. And he's counseling us through the book of Proverbs. Jesus, as the embodiment of wisdom, understands your deepest desires better than you understand your deepest desires because he created you. And and he created your soul. It's been hardwired to be a worshiper and to be a lover of God. And therefore, you will never be satisfied outside of a relationship with him. 
you're, you have this insatiable desire for love and intimacy and affirmation and joy, and that can only reach its desired climax in relationship with Jesus. That's the feast we're offering in Christianity. It reminds me to close with this great quote from Augustine, and it just, let this quote, maybe I'll say it twice, because it just, I want it to sit in your minds as we walk away from here today. St. Augustine, long, long time ago, said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Let's pray.